Is it okay to stop with the excruciating patients? Some of us want to panic. We'll talk with BaseballHQ.com columnist Ray Murphy about managing the categories, future information advantages, and player facts and flukes, next on Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times, shall kicks and he fires, Rose Swain. There it is, there it is, get out, get out, all right. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 31st. It's show number 20 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, And in addition to BaseballHQ.com columnist and general manager Ray Murphy, we'll have our regular contributors from what we think is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Jock Thompson. Our minor league expert Rob Gordon is on the DL this week, battling with some bronchitis. But we do have our other commentaries. Our HQ Alternatives commentator is Matt Beagle, talking about challenging conventional closer strategies by paying for saves. In our HQ matchup segment, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at Justin Masterson in Yankee Stadium and Jean-Marc Gomez against Cincinnati. In Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com Roto Gaming columnist Pat DiCaprio talks about May, the great equalizer. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, two different guys with three homer games? What do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. I'm sure you heard about it on Wednesday night. Both Ryan Zimmerman and Deonor Navarro smoked three home runs in a single game. The first time that's happened since Evan Longoria and Dan Johnson did it on the last day of last season. Navarro is the first catcher to do it since John Buck in April of 2010. And now the first inning of our show and to hit the first of three home runs, our League Watch News report, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League and leading off it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Nick, a lot of fantasy baseball teams through injury or poor performance are going to be on the lookout for any kind of help they can get in their rotations. Uh, And let's start with the big news of the week. Michael Waka in St. Louis, boy, uh, for a rookie, he just came out of the gate fire and had a great first start in the bigs. He did indeed. I mean, this was was a much-anticipated call-up of Michael Waka and a much-anticipated first start. And seven innings pitch, two hits, seven strikeouts, I believe, Uh, only two base runners. So a great, great beginning for Michael Walker's career in St. Louis. And the question is, certainly he's a guy you want to go spend some fab dollars on. The question is how much. I would, I would really urge anybody, I think, that's getting ready to, to pick up Michael Walker to take a look at our call-up section on the site this week. Uh, there's a really good analysis there of, of Waka and of what he throws and of uh, you a gauge of what his potential might be. The, 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 I think the concern with Walker at this point, the guy has, has succeeded all the way along, all the way up through the through the minors. Uh, there's no reason he shouldn't succeed in the big leagues, but there's something to, to keep uh, your eye on. He's throwing primarily a fastball change-up combo. That was getting a lot of strikeouts at the lower levels of the minors. 
but as we head into uh, this season in the upper levels of the minors, his his DOM is down to 5.8 at AAA. So that combination was not working quite so well at the AAA level. It worked fine in his first major league start, but who knows if he can continue getting major league hitters out with a basic uh, kind of a two-pitch uh, two pitch combo to start things off. He's going to have to use his breaking balls more, and he has them, but hasn't been using them very much in the upper levels so far. It's also worth pointing out that while this was an auspicious debut, it was an auspicious debut against the Kansas City Royals, which is not exactly like having it against, uh, you know, the Cincinnati Reds, the Big Red Machine, or anything like that. Kansas City's a struggling offense. It is indeed, and Billy Butler was not playing last night, so that's even more of a struggling offense. So, you know, it wasn't the, certainly wasn't the strongest team in the league for him to, uh, to, to, to provide a real test of what he can do uh, against most offenses in the major leagues. I guess it, it comes down to what we always talk about on this show, uh, Nick, and that is whether or not you're going to make a big fab investment depends a lot on the context of where you are in your league right now. If you're second or third and you're you know in a battle for the top spot, might be the kind of risk you really can't afford to take. And on the other hand, if you're sixth or seventh and you need to catch some lightning in a bottle, then this is exactly the kind of investment that you want to make. Certainly, certainly is. You know, and one other thing to keep in mind, the Cardinals have already said that they're going to limit his innings this year. Uh, probably to around 150. He's already thrown 50-plus innings, so we're looking at probably 100 innings left. Uh, 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 the St. Louis GM said uh, 22 starts, five innings apiece ought to be about right. And if, that, if they stick to that five innings per start, that means his chances of getting wins are reduced because obviously the less time you spend in the game, the more chance there is that you're going to leave tied or behind or that the lead will change after you leave the game so a lot of reasons to be wary of Michael Waka a lot of, a lot to like don't get us wrong but also a lot of reasons not to throw every penny of your fab into a big bid uh, Stephen Nickrand had an interesting column at the baseballhq.com site Nick about potential starters who are currently lurking in the bullpens and one of the names that jumped out at me was Craig Stammen of Washington yeah, Craig Stammen is uh, as, as Stephen said is kind of a late bloomer I mean this is a guy who's not uh, 29 years old uh, has not shown us a whole lot earlier, but is really pitching very, very well at this point. I mean, at 161 BPV, uh, striking out nine and a half batters per nine innings, working this at this point in relief, but certainly could get a, uh, and, and, and probably not worth much in middle relief, only 24 innings pitched so far for the entire season. But uh, but certainly, if he gets a shot at the rotation, would be would be worth something. And the interesting things about Stammen are, he's, he's not uh, not compiling those stats purely on right-handed hitters. Uh, right-handed pitcher himself. He's, he's also being very hard on lefties. Actually, 12.5 dom against lefties, 63% ground ball rate. Uh, also very rough on right-handed batters. A 13.3% swinging strike rate. So uh, that tells us that his high dom is for real. Guys are swinging and missing at his pitches, uh, and a, a great ground ball tilt. Here's someone who's really very, very interesting. And if he gets a shot at the rotation, could have some real uh, value in uh, in fantasy leagues. And the only caveat there, I think, Nick, as we both realize, is that when high dom pitchers come out of the bullpen to become starters, their dominance rate usually declines because you can't you can't go all out as a starter the way you can when you know you're only going to be pitching to three, four, maybe five batters out of the bullpen. That's right. That's very definitely true. So the dom could go down, but the other things are, are there. High ground ball rate and excellent control suggests that, in fact, he could, could could succeed over a longer stint than uh, than a couple of innings. It lo- does look like a really interesting idea. I like this idea a lot. Uh, Steve also mentioned uh, Alfredo Figaro of Milwaukee. Yeah, Alfredo Figaro actually got a start this week. And Milwaukee, the back end of the Milwaukee rotation is just a mess. Uh, Kyle Loesch has been probably their best pitcher, but he's having some uh, 
uh, having some injury issues. Uh, I think my elbow was a little bit sore this week, and uh, he, he didn't make his, his his next start last night, but missed one start that Alfredo Figueroa took. Uh, Willie Peralta has been awful over the last month. Uh, just a real mess kind of at the back end of the Milwaukee rotation. So some opportunity there. Uh, Alfredo Figueroa's first start uh, wasn't all that good, wasn't all that bad. I mean, he it was a uh, it was a PQS three because he only went five innings and he gave up three home runs, but that was about all he gave up. He uh, got some strikeouts. He only walked one guy. So other than the home run ball biting him uh, kind of badly on that first start, Figueroa looked pretty good. Here's a guy that out of the bullpen at this point, 31 innings pitched, a 106 BPV, uh, decent decent dominance, 7.3 dom, uh, excellent control, uh, a nice ground ball tilt, uh, someone who could uh, could have some success if he gets a chance in the rotation, and certainly a possibility that he could get that opportunity. It uh, kind of all depends on what Milwaukee decides to try to straighten up the back end of that rotation. And before we go, let's look at one other pitcher, not a starter this time, but uh, Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, looked at the April-May skills rankings of all the relievers in baseball, and uh, one of the names that jumped out at me in the latter part of that column was Mark Melanson, the right-handed pitching uh, setup man in Pittsburgh. Melanson's a past closer. He kind of uh, flopped in Boston last year, but... Doug brought his name to our attention because he's one of a few guys that is a one injury away from closing. Jason Grilly has looked sensational for Pittsburgh this year, but uh, has not been the picture of health throughout his career. That's true, and that was also the, there was also the speculation early in the year that Jason Grilly would get traded around the trade deadline. Now, Pittsburgh is currently playing so well that they probably won't do that. If, if they're going to contend, they're likely to hang on to Grilly. But, uh, but Molasson uh, has been very, very good. Uh, 186 BPV, uh, 0.93 ERA. Uh, listen to that again, 0.93 ERA so far this season. 29 strikeouts, only two walks. So good dom, excellent control, uh, and actually a 2.14 XERA. So while he's been sort of lucky uh, in getting that ERA down so low because he had a high strand rate and it's not giving up uh, giving up home runs, uh, he's also pitching very, very well. So a guy that kind of worth tucking away, uh, in case he gets a shot at closing, I think, later in the year. And he's certainly not going to hurt your ERA and whip in the meantime. I think uh, what you said earlier is dead right. I know people were speculating at the start of the season that even if Grilly held the job that he would be traded when Pittsburgh fell out of contention, and they're defying those expectations by staying in contention, at least so far. Grilly's at 109 uh, for an ERA, an 069 whip. Uh, both of those figures cannot hold up. Uh, his expected ERA is around 227, so a full run higher. Uh, still very good, uh, don't get me wrong, but uh, now now if you're looking at Melanson, it's pretty much an injury play. Yeah, very definitely, I think, uh, an injury play at this point for Melanson. And, uh, but a guy worth having on your staff if you can get him uh, very, very inexpensively. In uh, deep leagues especially, because he's really going to help your ERA, it might pick you up a few vulture wins. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly, and certainly we'll get a save. He's had one save so far. We'll get a save opportunity to if Grilly uh, has, needs a night of rest, which... Uh, which he could, as well as Pittsburgh is playing. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Look forward to it. Harold Nichols writes the National League Central Division Outlook for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our reporter on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. How you doing this week? Uh, not so good in my teams, actually, thanks for asking, but uh, in my life, not so bad. Uh, it was a big week in the American League West, Jock. Uh, Jared Weaver has come back to the Angels rotation. I know you took in his first start since he returned. How did he look? 
Yeah, Weaver looked like he's never left, uh, PD. He, he retired the first 12 hitters in the first through the first four innings. Uh, he tired a little bit, as, as to be expected, in the fifth and sixth. He, he wound up throwing 86 pitches in, in six innings, but uh, it, it was a really good start. He got the win. Uh, we, we, we recommended to owners uh, this past week that uh, against the uh, weak-hitting Dodgers that they should get him in the lineup, and obviously, in, in hindsight, it was the right call. Now, you touched on this in your American League West Division Outlook column at BaseballHQ.com, but how does Jared Weaver coming back to the rotation affect the rest of the pitchers for the Angels? Well, it's interesting. We thought that uh, Jerome Williams would be the guy getting bumped at least for a, for a week or two, uh, even though he's pitched very credibly as a starter. But uh, Mike Sosha announced this past week that over the next six games, he's going to have six different starters. So Jerome's going to get another start. And uh, I... Well, I'd lose money in trying to predict what Mike Sosha is going to do next, but uh, uh, I, I get the feeling that Tommy Hansen may be on the bubble here. I mean, he had this mysterious disappearance for the last month. Uh, it was first a, uh, a bereavement situation. I think it was a, the death of his stepbrother, but then it turned into uh, 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 something a little longer than that. Uh, he, he, he hasn't pitched since, uh, since a game in early May, I believe, and uh, it, there's no telling how he's going to do. And, of course, we still have Joe Blanton. Sosa said that Joe Blanton's going to get a start or two for now. Yeah, Joe's pitched better his last few games. Uh, um, his, obviously, that hit rate had to subside a little bit. Uh, it, was, it was truly overinflated. But he's still Joe Blanton. He's still, he, when he's on, he'll strike out a lot, but he'll, he'll give up a lot of hits. So uh, it's an interesting situation. I think the thing that Sosha's wrestling with is, the, is that Jerome Williams has really pitched credibly his last uh, four games. He's, uh, three of them have been uh, QS doms. The other one was a, a, a PQS3. And uh, when you get those kind of good performances, um, it's it's kind of tough to boot somebody from the rotation. Do you think there's any chance that they just stay with six guys and try to reduce the workloads across the board? Boy, that's a tough call. Uh, managers do that occasionally, and you know they, they usually don't uh, stick with it for too long. And uh, my take is that they, they still need a, a long reliever for when some of these starters don't go very long. But, uh, boy, your guess is as good as mine there. Um, next two weeks should be real interesting here in Anaheim. I'll be talking about Joe Blanton with Todd Zola in our new segment in a few minutes. This past Thursday's Playing Time Notes, Jock Rod Truesdell noted that Colby Lewis of Texas, and I know Texas was looking forward to getting him back, but he got pulled off his rehab assignment, some soreness in his triceps muscle, and now they've given him one of those platelet-rich plasma injections, hoping to speed his recovery. That doesn't always work either. You've been following this for a while for your American League West coverage. What can you tell us about Colby Lewis? Well, this announcement wasn't a real surprise given that Lewis's velocity had been clocked at 86, 87 miles an hour in, in his uh, rehab games. And he, he wasn't doing real well in AAA. He, he was going, uh, I, I think uh, he'd, he'd pitched six innings and given up six earned runs. He wasn't striking out a lot of people. Um, I'm not a doctor, but, but none of this sounds real promising. Uh, I, I, quite frankly, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to, uh, to Lewis. And in the meantime, two other guys have filled in because there's been more than that uh, injury in the Rangers rotation. Justin Grimm and Nick Tepish have pitched all right. What's the outlook there? Yeah, they really have. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised even both of them are, are mid-rotation upside prospects, but usually you, you expect a little more inconsistency from them. And they've been inconsistent, but they've but for the most part, they've kept the Rangers in, the, in games and the Rangers... Uh, uh, Still have a pretty decent offense, uh, even though it, it, it's not quite as it's been in previous years. 
Um, they've more than held their own. Uh, uh, Grimm is the strikeout guy. If you're looking for strikeouts, he's, he's averaging uh, 7.9 uh, strikeouts per nine innings or a 7.9 dom. And Tepish has a, a 50% plus ground ball rate, so, so they've been effective. What's going to be interesting is to see uh, – um, if, if, if they stay in the rotation, and I think they're going to, at least for the next month, uh, what happens to them in Arlington with the onset of warmer weather? Yeah, the ball starts flying, although then you still have to like Tepish with that ground ball rate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and you, ca- you can't argue with success. And they've got a, a real good bullpen uh, backing them up. These guys don't have to go that far into games before the bullpen becomes a factor. Staying in the American League West, Dustin Ackley, a former top draft pick of the Mariners, has finally worn out his welcome. They sent him down and called Nick Franklin up. So he's in Seattle. How do you think he's going to do? It was interesting. Everybody's wondering where he was going to play because the, the Mariners have such problems in the, in both middle infield positions. But uh, his long actually, or Franklin's long-term position is projected to be at second base, and that's where he started his first two games. So I think that's telling us that the, the Mariners agree with that pr- projection. Um, he's not going to be as good as his uh, his triple-A numbers were obviously where he came from, Tacoma and the Pacific Coast League. The numbers are inflated. He was hitting 324. He had a very good 30 to 20 walk strikeout uh, rate, meaning that he was uh, he had walked 30 times and 142 at-bats and only struck out 20 times. Um, I think this is a guy over the long term that could hit 270, 280, could post double-digit home runs and double-digit steals. Uh, obviously, it remains to be seen what he'll do in his first first big go-around uh, in the majors, but uh, he, he's a solid middle infield prospect, I think. Of all the stats that we look at from minor leagues, uh, the batting eye ratio, that is, bases on balls to strikeouts, is one that seems to translate really well to the big leagues. Uh, of course, we don't expect him to maintain a 1.50 batting eye uh, ratio, but if he can even stay around one, that, that's a very good indicator that his batting average at least will be pretty good. Yeah, and and this this is almost an anomaly unless Franklin is growing because he's never he's never quite done this well uh, in the minors before. But I think it's ironic that you mention that because Dustin Ackley had a terrific batting eye in the minors, and when he first came up, his 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 batting eye was fairly solid for a rookie back in 2011. It was 0.51, and it's just deteriorated as he's as he's gone through the majors. Uh, I think people have to start questioning his future. Finally, Jock getting out of the American League West in the Central. Division. Division Outlook column. Bob Berger noted that Tyler Flowers of the White Sox has been struggling. His batting average below the Mendoza line, and the White Sox are having trouble scoring runs. They're having trouble winning games, and they may be looking for help in Josh Fegley, a top prospect, tearing it up at the catcher position in Triple A. What are the chances Fegley's going to be up in the near future, and how might he uh, do? Well, you start with Flowers, and the big concern with him was how would he do in a full-time role because he had done very well against left-handed pitching playing part-time behind A.J. Pierzynski. And uh, this year he's not doing very well against either righties or lefties. I mean, he's just deteriorated across the board. He's He's got a 60% contact rate. He's not providing the power he used to provide against lefties, although it's a it's a small sample and that will probably come around. But obviously the White Sox have big problems scoring if they're not hitting home runs, and, and Flowers is part of that with that uh, that sub-70% contact rate and that 200 batting average. Flegley is an interesting guy. He's a, he's a supplemental first-round pick uh, back in 2009 out of Indiana, and he was actually an impressive hitter in college. What people a lot of people don't realize is that he hasn't been the same since contracting a rare blood disorder that reportedly weakened him considerably and actually resulted in the removal of his spleen. Now, he's he's 
he's gotten healthier, obviously, and he's hitting 325 in the International League. These aren't Pacific Coast League numbers. So 325 and 11 home runs. Obviously, he's not going to keep this up when he gets to Chicago, whenever that is. But but some of this ought to translate. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if the White Sox bring him up sometime in June after Super Two is passed. All right, Jock. Thanks very much for filling us in. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Talk to you next week. Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com. Writes a whole bunch of columns for the site as well, and is our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for a new feature here on the show. Todd Zola of MastersBall.com has been one of our favorite guests over the years, and we're delighted to be able to say he's going to be joining us every week here at Baseball HQ Radio to talk about players, the game, the theories, and just what's going on. Todd, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be here, Patrick. Well, it's good to have you, and of course we're going to be having Todd on a regular basis here at Baseball HQ Radio because, Todd, you've uh, joined the staff of BaseballHQ.com. Tell us about that. I haven't left Masters Ball. What I'm doing is talking to you every week. I'll be doing some research for you folks, and we're uh, still a work in progress, but we've got some other stuff. You'll be seeing my name on the side. I may, may do a little bit more forum, uh, forum uh, stuff that I normally do, answering some questions, not, you know, not necessarily as an HQ guy, but just, just because. And, uh, yeah, it should be pretty fun. I'm looking forward to it. And, of course, here on the show, what we're going to do every week, Todd, is we're just pretty much going to talk for a while about fantasy baseball and the theories and the practice and, of course, some of the players. And let's talk about some players this week because you've raised some eyebrows with some of your comments around the uh, fantasy baseball world. First of all, a lot of people might find that you're unusually positive about Kelly Johnson. Uh, Why Kelly Johnson and what's so interesting to you about him? A couple things caught my eye about Johnson. Uh, he was sort of the player that I like in an AL-only league to begin with because he's not wasn't going to get all that much playing time, at least in theory, at the beginning of the year. So he's a perfect endgamer for middle infield or something like that. I have him on my NFBC AL-only uh, auction team, uh, you know, as I practice what I preach sort of thing. So I've sort of been following him. He always seems, you know, especially with Tampa, I just he was going to get more at-bats because that's what Tampa does. Uh, so he started to get more at-bats, and what caught my eye is he's been hitting in a three-hole lately. And I found that to be you know a little bit interesting because you usually don't platoon your three-hole hitter. So we did a little bit more digging into, into Kelly, and even though he's a lefty, for his career, he's handled left-handed pitching better than he's handled right-handed pitching. He's one of those guys with a, a rare reverse split. It's even more rare for a lefty to handle lefties better than he handles righties. And this isn't just a one-year, you know, two-month thing where you can say it's going to even out. This is for his career. And what he's actually doing this year, he's actually handling righties better. And that's why his numbers are up where they are. I've always thought Johnson was sort of a... I'd never seen Johnson and Aaron Hill in the same room. And uh, I was caught to the same... They thought they were the same player. And, and uh, heck, Hill's hurt now. Maybe they are the same player. And he's just wanted to be in Tampa instead of Arizona right now. I don't know, but um, so I, I think that the average will probably come down, but he's always giving you counting stats, uh, steals and steals and power. So buffer the average for when it does come down. But he's a guy that I'm confident, even in mixed leagues now, I'm, I'm more than happy to deploy in my uh, in my middle infield or even second base. I was going to ask you. You started off by saying he's certainly worth having on a roster in a deep league, but now you think that he's worth having in a in a say a 15 team mixed. 12, 12 at borderline, 
But anybody you know who plays fifteen team mixed knows we're at the point of the season. And 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 Ron did a little piece on this and 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 tweeted about it. There's more injuries than ever, so the replacement pool for injuries is is you know you have to go down further. So the players are of lesser quality, which you know certainly helps Johnson's case. But in a fifteen team league, he's not gonna he's not gonna play every day. He that Tampa. You know, unless you're named Ben Zobrist, you, you don't play every day, or Lingoria, you don't play every day. That's just what Madden does. So he's going to have off days, but when he plays, he's still going to, you know, perform at a level as some other back-end middle infielders that are playing seven or six days a week. So I'm at the point, especially third in the lineup, every, you know, every, every, clo- every spot closer to the top gets you something between 15 and 20 more plate appearances over the course of the season. So... He could get as many plate appearances as a regular guy hitting seventh or eighth now that he's hitting third. So I don't think you're losing a whole lot on playing time uh, from Johnson, even if he does miss a game here and there. And, you know, the thing is, he's not, I don't know if I want him to sit against lefties because he hits lefties. I just believe that Tampa's really smart about how it puts players out on the field, and that's to your advantage if you're a Kelly Johnson owner because you can feel confident, knowing that the organization is smart, that they're putting him out there with a greater chance to succeed than perhaps if he was on some other team. Oh, absolutely. Now, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that they were aware before I was of the splits or else they would have been strictly using him against righties, and he's batted against several lefties this year. Now, I do know, and I've read interviews where Madden will use the old, you know, he's three for eight with a home run, so I'm going to put him in the lineup, which kind of makes my already gray hair even grayer. But that's all right. I'll, I'll give him that. You know, I don't necessarily agree with that kind of thinking, but we'll give it to him, and, you know, if it works out. Sometimes it works out in spite of that thinking. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's what Tampa does, perhaps as well, if not better than anybody. And still with pitching as well, which is why, you know, when any I know what Odorizzi hasn't done all that well in his short stint, but whenever a Tampa pitcher is promoted, um, you know, my eyes peek up. I, I'm listening. My ears perk. My ears perk up. My eyes open. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm listening. I'm I'm aware because uh, Tampa has a pretty good track record of dealing with their young pitching and putting it again and putting pit young pitchers into situations where they're fairly confident they will succeed unlike other organizations where they're throwing young pitchers in there because they either have no choice or because their fans are angry or all those other reasons to put a pitcher in there that aren't such good reasons. Right, and I know Rodney's struggling a bit, but they also are very smart with the way they handle their bullpen. They don't let the guys hang out there to dry. They don't take one for the team, that sort of thing. So, you know, he'll give them the hook, and he won't let them absorb that six-inning beating if you walk the first guy and the second guy lines out to the second baseman, he's pulling him, and it's a bullpen game. You were also very bearish uh, writing for ESPN about Jay Bruce. And uh, to say the least, you've been taking some heat about how how bearish you are on what is perceived as a pretty good hitter. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm not going to say that, that Jay Bruce is uh, is my version of Mike Trout. It's not quite to that extent. But you're right, uh, we did some updated rankings in a, a couple of weeks ago. I also contribute to the ESPN fantasy staff. I do some freelance work and some contract work for the worldwide leader. I've been doing it for a year and a half now. And part of what I did was they asked me, or what my responsibility is, they asked me to send them my mid-May going forward rankings. Not, you know, final stats, but how I felt the players would do from the middle of May to the end of the season. 
and it got compared to the other rankers as well as the original rank. And part of the part of the issue was a lot of the players where I had discrepancies, I had discrepancies back in and when we did them originally, but they didn't get publicized because it was given as a single rank. So a lot of these ranks, you know, how can you be so different from the original list? Well, I was very close to my original thought, but you just didn't know what my original thought was. Now, this isn't necessarily the case on Bruce. I was a little bit higher on Bruce, but I'm a big contact rate guy. I just, I believe that that's the purest skill and metric to look at. He's fanning more, and I know he's streaky. He's fanning more than he ever has. Uh, He's had months where he's fanned 30% of the time, and and usually comes down the next month, and, and he that's what he did in April, and it's starting to come down. But to me, he's uh, living off a of BABIP that we, I don't think we need to tell you folks it's going to come down. And when it does come down, I'm not convinced the K rate is going to correct as it normally has. And for whatever reason, his power's down. And I just I don't think that the Bray Bruce, when it does equilibrate with the BABIP, is going to be the one we expect. And my numbers with a batting average around 240 to 250 in an ESPN standard league of 10-team mixed, that just kills you. And, and So you have to keep that in context as well. It's not as dangerous or perilous in an AL or, sorry, NL-only league. But in a 10-team mixed league, a 240 average is just going to drain you. It's going to kill you. So he came out way low in my rankings. Now, since then, he had a week where he was on fire, and now he's back to cooling off again. So, you know, this is Jay Bruce. Uh, we don't know where he's going to end up, but uh, on your on on the HQ forums, there's a question about Kemp versus Bruce, and I almost chimed in. I want Kemp, but I just can't justify Kemp. But my point is, I don't think Bruce is going to do what he has done. You know, I don't see 30 homers in, in 260. I see closer to 18 homers and. 240 to 250 the rest of the year. And this raises an, an issue about understanding when we talk about what ought to happen doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Just because the numbers indicate that Jay Bruce should improve in such and such a way or that uh, Matt Kemp should improve in such and such a way, the fact is that that's only a likelihood. It's not a certainty. And sometimes I think people get misled by the touts out there and, and the people and the experts who say this is going to correct, and it isn't always so. Right. A couple things here. The first being, I like, you know, what we say as our static projection is a weighted average of a series of plausible outcomes. Now, I mean, getting a, running across the street and getting hit by a bus Therefore, you know, having zero games of zero, that's not a plausible outcome. Uh, on the other hand, you do need to factor in the fact that Tulowitzki and Longoria can get hurt. So that's why maybe their at-bats are reduced over uh, of someone that, that might be playing, you know, Miguel Cabrera, who you're going to play 158 games. Um, so what I, I, I kind of think of it as a, as a bell curve, that the number that we give, the projection that we give, is the apex of that curve, and to the left of that, is the is a bad year now it's a plausible outcome but it's just a less likely plausible outcome according to probabilities i mean you roll a dice you know 36 times you know six times it's going to be seven that's the most likely outcome but there are 30 other outcomes that are you know less likely but plausible and i know i'm not comparing a human being to a dice i'm just talking about strictly the you know the the plausible outcome aspect of it so a lot of times when a guy has a bad year, all he had was an expected year 
but less expected that just happened to fall to the left of the bell curve. And a good year is just one of the you know less expected plausible outcomes that's the, to the right of the uh, bell curve. And then you're right. All we can do is say what we think is going to happen. Then it's up to the owner. Is there is there something tangible that might make you think he is going to be better than you know than expected? Are you familiar with this player? Did he does he have a new pitch? Uh, or are you familiar with this player and you're aware that he's going through a divorce and therefore he may be to the left of the bell curve? So all you know that's it. Figure what you know in air quotes. You know, picture a big guy doing air quotes right now. Uh, air quotes should happen, and then part of the fun of a fantasy manager is to try to decide why it won't. Yeah, and and that you do have an advantage with a guy like Miguel Cabrera being likely to 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 stay in the part of the bell curve. It's probably a taller, thinner bell curve for him because he has such a long track record of consistently doing what what we expect him to do, but. There's a real problem here with sample size, and you hear it sometimes on TV when the guys who like to sound like they're getting involved in sabermetrics or whatever will say, well, the sample size is now big enough, and we're, you know, we're into May, so he's got 100 at-bats. So that's a big enough sample size. And really, 100 at-bats is not a big enough sample size. Even, even 100 innings pitched is probably not a big enough sample size. Big enough sample sizes are in the thousands of trials, not in the hundreds. And so let's not fool ourselves into thinking we know more than we do after 250 at-bats. Some pretty good sabermetricians are out there looking at sample size. And I mentioned contact rate before. I won't, we won't go into the you know, gory details because, like I said, it's, it's more than circumstantial evidence, but it's not hard fact yet. But contact rate stabilizes faster than uh, any of the other metrics. So a guy like Bruce, who is fanning more this early in the season, if I'm looking for an edge, my edge is thinking that you know what, when he does stabilize, he's going to be he's going to be fanning more going forward. Chris Davis, I think there's a lot of real behind Chris Davis because he's fanning less. So I don't expect that when Chris Davis remembers he's Chris Davis, that he fans as much as he did previous years. So contact rate, I believe anyway, and and the data does suggest it. To the extent of which I think is up in the air right now, is it 50 plate appearances? Is it 100? Is it 150? 50? 150? Excuse me. It's a lot fewer than people may think. But like you said, on the other hand, sometimes things never stabilize. Was was Matt Cain lucky for three years, or you know, did he just suddenly forget how to keep the ball in the park, or is is home run regression just catching up to him in one fell swoop? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it takes more than a year, two, or even three years for the water to find its level. But eventually it will, and, you know, people are out there probably trying to, you know, look at Matt Cain's pitches and try to figure out a tangible reason where it's probably just that it just took three years. But you know what? The home run for fly ball is finally equilibrating. And even though it has, that still doesn't mean that it's going to stay there for any uh, short-run period in the future. I remember doing a research piece for for Baseball HQ looking at um, batting averages, and when you look at Derek Jeter was the example I chose, and his career average is 310 or thereabouts, and he hit that probably in about his third season for for his combined career and has stayed within a couple of points of it ever since. But in any particular 150-game patch that you want to take during that career, his average has been 455, and it's been 210. Right. And and in any particular short-run period, you, can, you can't say with confidence that it's the, the, the result is going to be locked in. I think it's more locked in for skills than it is for outcomes, 
But even even at that, there's going to be some variation in these little short run periods that we call a season. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Again, and there are some players who uh, who who even a career might not be enough for the luck to even out. Then there's some players where it happens overnight. Uh, you know, so those who own Patrick Corbin are hoping it continues. You know, those that owned yeah, Paul right. Mahomes found out pretty quick that you know it, it hit regression hit him pretty darn quick. Whereas some you know some players it hasn't caught up to yet. It doesn't happen the same. There's a lot of ball players out there. Uh, you know, randomness is going to occur, and not everybody's going to follow the you know the, the middle the midpoint. There are going to be people on either end. And before we let you go, uh, Todd, give us maybe 30 seconds on Joe Blanton, usually a pretty bad fantasy pitcher, but somebody you say we should be looking at. Man, Joe Blanton's going to be the death of me. I loved his skills coming into the year. I know he was coming to the American League, but he was coming to a big ballpark. And another team that I I thought, you know, knew how to handle the bullpen and knew how to, you know, he wasn't going to be the star of the staff. So he was a guy I thought was going to be a a very good streaming option in mixed leagues. And uh, hoo-hoo! Uh, was I? I don't know if I say I was wrong because you know I think I was right, but the outcomes were just wrong. Now's the time if he's been dropped that I think you need to go out and reconsider him. His K rate in the uh, in April was in the fours. It's 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 close to seven now, which is still below normal, but it's getting there. His control is still good. I think he's got Kansas City as his next game. Uh, if he's been dropped in mixed leagues, I think now's the time to go out and get back on the Blanton bandwagon. Uh, if you're in my league, you're not going to be able to get him because, unfortunately, I've been running him out there. But um, I think he's a guy you need to, you know, laugh when you want, when you're done laughing, look at the stats, and, and, and seriously consider him. Todd Zola, thanks very much. We'll be watching for you on BaseballHQ.com, and, of course, we'll be having you back again next week. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Todd Zola will be providing content to BaseballHQ.com and at other fantasy baseball outlets, especially MastersBall.com. Our feature interview with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com is next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. Just standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. It's going to be it. Way back there. Oh, Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Gavitt. Pleasure now to be joined by Ray Murphy, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and apparently some sort of high honcho in running things as well. Ray, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to talk as always, Patrick. Uh, before we start talking about the, the site and what you're doing there and everything, I always like to catch up with how our guests are doing in their leagues. And I know I always want to ask about your NFBC team. You had a top five finish a couple of years ago. How are you doing this year? Uh, not that not that good, actually. Um, I talked about the team in uh, your Master Notes segment here on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I uh, talked about how it had a really good day and dug me out of a hole. Uh, the follow-up to that from a couple of weeks ago was uh, that one-day surge actually turned into something sustainable. Team went from 12th or 13th place to third in the league over the course of 10 days or something like that. We've 
since backslid back to about eighth. But, uh, you know, we're fortunate to be in a league where the standings are quite compressed. A bunch of teams are, you know, jumbled in the middle of the pack. So, uh, you know, we can be eighth one day, fourth the next, you know, 11th the next. And it's, uh, you know, there, it looks like we have some work to do during the, for the season. But, uh, you know, we're not as dead as, you know, a current standing of eighth or ninth place might make you feel. We're, uh, you know, we feel like we're still battling. That's an important thing to understand in rotisserie games that sometimes I know most people do, but a, a lot of people seem not to, Ray, and that is you have to look when you're in ninth or eighth spot at the categories and say, geez, you know, I'm only four home runs out of picking up three points in that category, or I'm only point zero zero three away from picking up five points in whip and things like that. So sometimes things are not as dire as they seem, even with a, an, a fairly low uh, overall position at this time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, some, you know, I can look at my – the other team I spend a lot of time on is my labor mixed team, and that team is, uh, you know, perhaps legitimately dead. It's buried in 12th or 13th place, and, you know, if I do that standings analysis you're talking about, I just can't find that many points that are, you know, easily accessible. It's going to take a really sustained hot streak to turn things around. But if I look at this NFBC team, I can look at the standings and do exactly what you were just talking about, look at the various categories and say – Hey, you know, with a couple of just a couple of good days in a row, I can pick up, you know, 15 or 20 points. And as long as those points are at their fingertips and you're, you know, within the jumble in the categories rather than, you know, being relegated to the bottom, you know, 10 batting average points from the next guy or something like that, then, you know, there's more than enough time to jump from the bottom of the of that pack to the top. You know, as long as you're not buried, as long as there are potential points, you know, that are accessible with, you know, a hot couple of days or a hot week, then, you know, you can flip, you still have more than enough time to legitimately flip the standings. I remember a few years ago at BaseballHQ.com, I used to be one of the uh, columnists who covered Roto Strategy, and one of the things that I learned over playing the game and thinking about the game is, is that these packs have two aspects. The first is, how big are they? And the second is, where are you in them? And if they're if you're at the bottom of a real big stacked category, it's there's just points there waiting to be grabbed, and that doesn't just mean waiting for your team to have a big week. It can also be this is where I need to target my trading opportunity because uh, I have a lot of ground here that I can gain easily in say homers and RBIs, whereas in stolen bases I'm pretty much out of the picture or I'm I'm isolated between two packs or something like that. That's right, and this is exactly the time of year where the standings start to solidify where you can make those kind of judgments. If you're, you know, stolen bases is a great example. If you're really good or really bad in stolen bases at this point, you're probably starting to see a spread open up in either direction between you and, you know, the teams you're chasing or the teams that are chasing you. So that's a great place to, you know, maybe take some resources and, as you say, use the trade market to try to reallocate them to a point where, you know, maybe not moving your top stolen base guy, but maybe your second or third stolen base guy can turn into – you know, a home run RBI guy that could get you, you know, between home runs and RBIs, you know, six or seven standings points. Having said that, Ray, in your experience, do any of the categories tend to shape that way as opposed to being and staying relatively tight? Which which are the categories that uh, fall into those two uh, descriptions? I, I mean, anecdotally, it always seems to me that steals and saves are the ones that start to crystallize a little sooner. You've either built a roster that are, is good in those categories or is not, and those are the kind of things where people can make decisions to go heavy or light on them because those two categories relate less, 
less directly to the other scoring categories. If you, you know, you can't punt or semi-punt or de-emphasize home runs and RBIs because that has, you know, that's two categories in itself and it has a direct impact on runs too. If you do that, you probably just have a bad team. But you can go heavy on power and light on speed and just find yourself at, you know, three points out of 12 in stolen bases and still have a quality offense. The same goes for saves on the pitching side. It always seems like, um, you know, wins are always jumbled right down to the end, but saves might start to spread out. And then as they start to save, spread out, people start making decisions like we're talking about here and de-emphasizing the category or trying to make up ground in the category if they see an opportunity. And then as, you know, fewer people are competing in the category, that just, you know, leads to the stratification just getting uh, more dramatic. And when we're talking about making trades, this is also the time that you should be looking at your potential trading partner as far as where he stands in the various clumps and in the various categories because it makes a lot of sense for you to go to somebody and say, hey, you have six points you could get with a decent stolen base guy because you're at the bottom of a clump of that's got maybe five stolen bases from top to bottom. Uh, unlike a guy in my home league who recently uh, emailed me and asked me if I was interested in stolen bases because he had a huge surplus. Well, I'm already 20 bags behind the stolen base pack. You know, he could give me Ricky Henderson in his heyday, and I'm not going to make any ground up and save. So if you're going to make an intelligent trade offer, it really does behoove you to do some research about the other guy and where he stands and not just where you stand and what you have to trade away. That's absolutely right. It's a, you know, there's two parts of the equation and to find a good trade partner, you got to get both sides of it right. You got to figure out what you have as surplus and then find the right place to unload that surplus. And then the uh the second order derivative of that is don't trade those stolen bases to a guy who's going to use them to go buy you in the, in in a category. That's exactly right. And you know, the, a, another trap that comes up often with uh saves in particular was a discussion we were having on our forums this week is you sort of got to pay attention to not only who's right behind you in those categories, but what they have for assets. You know, somebody could be behind you, you know, say, for instance, someone's a couple of stolen bases behind you and uh, you're counting on staying ahead of them, even if you unload a speedster. But, you know, if that person who's behind you has Jose Reyes on their DL, when that guy comes back in the second half of the year, he's going to go flying right by you in stolen bases. And you might as well just write that off now or, you know, be aware of not just where the person is in the standings, but how they got there. That happens a lot with saves, too. Somebody may have racked up a bunch of saves early in the season, but then a closer that was helping them got hurt or got demoted or whatever. And, you know, they may be 10 saves ahead of you, but if you have three closers and they have one, you you can reel them in in short order. So it's not just about the standings. It's also about who's contributing on the roster in those categories right now. And in the long run, you also should be aware that by putting those stolen bases or saves or whatever the case might be onto some other guy's roster, really what you, in an ideal world, what you want to do is have him then go buy your, overall competitors in the league so if you can push him past the second third and fourth place teams and and remain isolated from that yourself you win by getting whatever you get and you also win by pushing your opponents back behind this also end absolutely right and that's of everything we're talking about here that might be the only thing that while you want to be mindful of it, it might be a little too early to draw conclusions about that at this time of year but in principle you're absolutely right Now, we've been talking about trades, but in the uh, NFBC main event, you can't make trades. Obviously, they they just wanted to make sure there was no hint of collusion in that regard. So there's no trading in the league. And I'm wondering, inside your own NFBC 15-team league, you can make or gain uh, points pretty rapidly. But what about the overall standings? How far back can you be, say, at the start of June as we approach the start of June and still have a realistic chance of making the money? You know, it's one of those things I've always wanted to do a good study on, but the, you know, 
to do it, you really have to collect the data, uh, you know, each week or each couple of weeks during the course of the season. And I've never actually done that. My gut tells me that if you're outside of the top, you know, 100 right now, you're probably cooked as far as, you know, getting into the top, you know, 10 or 15 for money spots. And if you want to you know, be a contender for the overall right now, you probably need to be within, uh, I'd say, top 50 reasonably to um, to get that, to, to, have, to be in the mix. And, you know, some of the same stuff applies. You know, you might be in the top 50 right now, but if you've been rocketing up the standings and, you know, at the end of April you were at 150, but you made a couple of savvy waiver pickups and your team's hitting on all cylinders right now, you, know, you could keep going in that direction. But, you know, it's getting to the point where if you don't have the good basis of stats, you know, certainly within the top 100 and probably narrower than that, there's, you know, you're almost at the point where you've got to pass so many teams, there's just not enough time left. And, Ray, do you still play in any home leagues, uh, college buddies, high school guys, anything like that? Yeah, I do. I actually have – it's funny. My uh, my home leagues are mostly with uh, college buddies, and I've got three of them, and they're all sim-based. I uh, My oldest league is a 2014 Apple League that I've played in since, uh, you know, for going on 20 years now that I picked up in college. Uh, and similar to that, uh, you know, a bunch of college buddies and I still play in, uh, sp- still play score sheet. We uh, have twin score sheet leagues, an AL league and an NL league that are mostly made up of the same 10 or 12 guys that, uh, you know, give us our annual opportunity to, uh, you know, talk trash to each other and, you know, play for nothing but bragging rights. And, uh, you know, the one or two times a year when we get together uh, always lead to uh, a lot of banter and all that stuff. So it's, uh, you know, it's funny how those things end up serving as a method of keeping in touch with people as much as anything. But, uh, yeah, those leagues are definitely a lot of fun and, uh, you know, are uh, a key part of my uh, fantasy portfolio. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Abbott with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray, there have been a few shifts in the management of the site over the last few years, and especially now that Ron Chandler has stepped back from the administrative role he played so prominently. What is your role now? Well, it's funny. I joked for a while, uh, you know, as this transition was ongoing, that my role was to do all the stuff that Ron had gotten tired of doing. And, uh, you know, there's still some truth to that. You know, Ron's still involved. You know, we haven't heard him here on the podcast and Master Notes in a couple of weeks, but he's going to be part of the rotation uh, with that going forward. And he's still writing regularly on the site, very much involved in, uh, you know, developing content and, you know, certainly helping – out with the the transition and sharing his years of wisdom with us. Uh, So technically right now I am uh, co-general manager of the site along with uh, Brent Hershey. Uh, As far as division of responsibilities, Brent is primarily responsible for the content on the site, the actual articles and coverage we provide. And I'm responsible for generically, you know, everything else from, uh, from the website to customer service, to social media, to, you know, whatever you can imagine. Uh, that said, you know, those are sort of um, official titles, and Brent and I are, you know, joined at the hip in just about everything we do, and, you know, we're sort of, uh, you know, t- managing this uh, by committee, I guess, is the way to go with, uh, you know, with Ron very much in the background and, uh, you know, sharing his, uh, the knowledge he built up over, you know, 20 plus years running this business himself. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really a three-headed monster right now, and it'll, it'll be that way for the foreseeable future. We're in the process of, you know, continuing to suck knowledge out of Ron's head, but that's going to take a very long time, and luckily Ron's going to be around for a long time to help us with that. So, uh, you know, it's all good. Ray, it seems like every time somebody creates an information advantage, the advantage tends to dissipate as the information seeps out from behind, uh, 
typically behind uh, internet paywalls and into the general discourse in fantasy baseball. So uh, if you go back to the Lima plan, that was kind of a proprietary thing that Ron had, and it was a breakthrough in thinking about uh, Roto Gaming strategy, but gradually everybody heard about it and, and incorporated it into their thinking. Then we had a better understanding of how draft inflation works, and that was a, an information advantage for people who knew about it, and advanced metrics like DOM and command and so on. These were breakthroughs until everyone knew about them, and so on and so on. So in the broader sense, where do you think the next breakthroughs are going to come from as far as uh, creating an information advantage for the savvy uh, fantasy player? There's no question it's getting harder to find an edge out there. Uh, you know, the cu- couple of avenues come to mind. Uh, you know, Ron Chandler has said for some time that he thinks the next advantages are to be gained in game theory. And, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to come out with the next Lima plan. But as we come out with better ways to manage our rosters or account for injuries or, you know, build a better top to bottom roster and manage it during the season, exploiting the rules of the games that we play, that, you know, that may not be one revolution, but it, I think that's an area where more incremental gains can be made. Another one that comes to mind is interesting. I was just reading uh, this week, I'm reading Terry Francona's book on uh, his years managing the Red Sox. And, you know, it, I love reading baseball books because you always end up picking up those little tidbits that, you know, for whatever reason, the writer didn't think were all that relevant. And you latch onto sure. it and get completely fascinated by it. And at least me, my only, my reactions always, I get frustrated that the author didn't feel the need to explore it in the level of detail I wanted. There was one uh, segment in the Francona book where he was talking about uh, how the Sox had hired a couple of statistical consultants, one of whom was Voros McCracken, who did the uh, the famous research on batting average and balls in play, and him and somebody else were feeding Francona lineup suggestions, and Francona, predictably, as an old-time baseball guy, was not too receptive to them. But he talked about one example, and this was like five years ago, in like 2007 or 2008, where the statistical consultant had suggested that they bench David Ortiz against a left-handed pitcher, I think it was, and instead play Eric Hinsky, uh, because and but the reason the guy cited was because Hinsky had a swing plane that better matched up with the sinker ball that the Yankee pitcher threw, and this just struck me as wow. MLB clubs were doing swing plane analysis and coming up with those sorts of decisions in their day to day decision making, you know, five or six years ago. How much further along are they now than we are out here in the rest of the world? And it makes me wonder that maybe one of the back to your question, one of the areas of advancement that's going to come out over time is all of this proprietary work that we always hear about the clubs doing over you know, and keeping to themselves in terms of gaining themselves an advantage is eventually going to come out, come out into the real world and into the rest of us, in, into the masses. And I wonder if that won't be the driver of some of the some, some of the advances in our games. It won't necessarily be that somebody cracks a new riddle. It will be that we find out that some consultant for a club cracked a riddle four years ago when his five-year non-compete clause finally expired and he's allowed to share it with the rest of us. So I, I almost wonder if some, you know, some things will come to us from that avenue as well. 
And that makes me wonder, I had Corey Schwartz on last week from Major League Baseball Advanced Media. He's the vice president of stats there. And we were talking about the uh, very advanced stats that are coming from pitch FX and soon to be coming from hit FX, where we get real discrete data about pitch speeds, pitch locations, release points, uh, batted ball velocity, and so forth. And we're removing a lot of the subjectivity out of what we even use nowadays about hard hit balls and so forth, where it's just an estimate of how hard the ball was hit by a guy looking at it. How much of those kind of stats are going to find their way into BaseballHQ.com? You know, it's certainly something we're going to have to take a close look at. And if you look at it right now, you know, one of the things that happens is you know, we look at these stats all the time. We don't actually register them, you know, include them on the site and player link or that sort of thing. But, you know, you did the research column last week or this week, I guess it was, about uh, swings, swing data using pitch FX and – Stephen Grant and his starting pitcher's buyer's guide will look at velocity and swing strike rates, which we are putting on the site soon, by the way, swing strike rates, but uh, you know, pitch movement and other data points that we don't actually register on the site. And what you find out about it is, you know, so far at least, we're not learning a ton out of that pitch FX data that we don't already know. For instance, if you look at the pitchers who throw the hardest and correlate that to the pitchers with the highest strikeout rates, it's practically the same list. So, you know, we're not, you know, the data, when the day comes that the pitch FX data is t- telling us things that we don't already know on some level or that we can't derive out of the metrics we have on the site now, then, yeah, we're going to have to go and put a lot of these metrics on the site. We're not there yet, and I don't know, To the back to the conversation you're having with Corey last week, uh, you know, some of that is how the data is being analyzed now, and some of it is, you know, just that there's so much data and, you know, people haven't peeled back the onion enough layers to get to the core of some of the matters. And some of it is that, you know, there's so much more data coming down the pipe that it's inevitable that, you know, those nuts are going to get cracked. But, you know, we're not quite there yet, but for sure that day is coming, I think. When you said that, Ray, it made me think maybe there's a possibility for an expected dominance metric where you could look for guys who have the big velocity but don't have the big dom rates and say, well, all things being equal, this guy's velocity indicates he should have a much higher dom rate, or conversely, at at such a low velocity, he should have a much lower dom rate, and maybe adjust your expectations accordingly. Yeah, it's very true. In fact, one of the guys uh, I know you want to talk about later as we go through some facts and flukes is a guy who I think is very interesting in that regard, so I'll hold my thoughts for a second. And you, you also mentioned that it's that you we know that there are teams out there that are using these data really aggressively and in new ways that we don't even know about. And I wonder, this is something I mentioned talking with uh, Todd Zola, could it be that we could have a proxy for that kind of team research by focusing our attention on acquiring players who play for those teams? For instance, we know that Tampa is really good at, at organizing when to bring up pitchers. They're pretty aggressive about roster manipulation and batting order manipulation. Maybe it would pay to just say, if I've got a choice or as a tiebreaker, I'm going to grab a player off Tampa. I'm going to grab a player off Oakland. I'm going to grab a player off of teams that are fairly aggressive about using these data, and I'm going to be a little leery about the old-fashioned teams where the general manager says, nah, it's all numbers, and you guys with your uh, slide rules, you know, that kind of thing. Hey, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, in fact, you know, just out of protest when I heard Eric Wedge's comments this week about uh, Dustin Ackley, it made me want to just go cut all, cut all of my Mariners out of protest. So what you're suggesting is there may actually be a valid reason to do that. I like it. If For those who didn't hear, uh, Eric Wedge basically made some assertion about how the sabermetricians were the cause of Dustin Ackley's poor performance, which 
seemed bizarre. It's like blaming your doctor because you got a, a sprained knee. That's exactly what it sounded like, and I think maybe they need to uh, look at how things are going in Seattle overall, and maybe the problem is, you know, not enough sabermetrics rather than too much. I don't know. Just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like they're sitting there uh, atop the uh, baseball world looking down and saying, you know, you guys have it all wrong and we have it right. It's, it, does, it did seem kind of comically uh, overstated, to say the least. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And, Ray, we've been asking all our expert guests since the start of the season – to tell us whether various storylines and player performances are facts or flukes. This is a, a title we kind of stole from First Pitch Arizona because we like doing it there. And let's start with Hunter Pence of the Giants. Nine homers, 29 RBIs. He's batting 290 with nine bags. So he's about a $25, $26 player on our 5x5 five five player valuations. Do you think Hunter Pence's good season so far is a fact or a fluke? I will go more fact than fluke. The stolen bases, there's not a lot of support for in his history, but they're still encouraging in the sense that they at least tell us he's healthy and feeling good and has strong legs and is, you know, running that often, I think, is an endorsement that he's, uh, you know, things are going well for him right now. Uh, the power and batting average, I'm that's where I'll start to mostly buy into what he's doing. The batting average is a little over his historical levels, but he's also making more contact than he has in the past. So that might sustain. And, you know, power has been his calling card for a while now. And, you know, he's at an age where a peak power season is certainly not out of the realm of possibilities. So I'm not really buying the speed, but I'll buy most of the rest of what he's doing. A couple of years ago, I gambled on Nate McClough and uh, really paid the price for it. And I've asked other guests about him. He's 25 bucks so far this year. With 17 bags, he's over 300. Is Nate McClough a fact or a fluke? Yeah, I think he burned me that last year when he went off the uh, cliff in Pittsburgh or Atlanta or wherever it was, too, back in, I think it was 2009. Uh, I almost... Uh, I. I've wanted to write about him a couple of times this year. It's really a fascinating story. Uh, he's actually tailed off a little bit in May in terms of his batting average, which you know is not a surprise at all. He was you know being propped up by a huge BABIP in April, but you know he's running a lot, and that's a skill he's had. And you know he gets he, he draws enough walks to get on base, and you know for whatever reason, talking about teams that do things well and teams that don't do things well in terms of hitters, you got to start to have some respect for how Baltimore is handling these guys, the way they've. Uh, you know, coached up Chris Davis over the last couple of years and the way they've gotten Manny Machado to hit the ground running and getting mileage out of guys like McLeod who were cast-offs from other teams. You know, I'm willing to, you know... uh, I'm I'm mostly willing to buy into what McLeod is doing, especially as a speed source, and say that he can keep this up. I wonder if Baltimore is one of those teams that secretly has some sabermetricians in the background identifying guys like Nate McLeod because... You know that Nate McClough came to the Orioles uh, as a relatively cheap investment, and maybe somebody back in the in the offices with the laptop was saying, "You know who you should be looking at." You know, if you know, say what you will about Dan Duquette, and you know his name is you know not always highly regarded in Boston, but even when he was in Boston, uh, you know, from the late '90s through 2002 or 2003, whatever it was. If, if he had a strong skill, it was finding the guys off the scrap heap like Nate McLeod. He pulled in Tim Wakefield from, you know, when Pittsburgh gave up on him. And, you know, there were a bunch of other examples where he found guys who, you know, were, you know, quadruple A guys or guys who had washed out in other organizations. And he's he, that seems to be a skill he still owns. And McLeod is a current example of that. He's uh, That's something that when he grabs somebody off the scrap heap, Jason Hamill's another guy that comes to mind that he's done recently. Uh, you know, I, I pay attention to that because that's a skill that Duquette has demonstrated. Was Duquette the guy that had the rotisserie champion who blabbed out that he was, in fact, the guy responsible for all that success? Yes, it was. 
Alex Gordon of Kansas City is at $23 this year. He's batting three thirty-five, six homers, 31 RBIs. We've been waiting for a breakthrough for a long time. Thought we had it a year or so ago. Is this breakthrough a factor, a fluke? I'm going to call this one a fluke. I really like Alex Gordon. He's a really nice baseball player. He, a lot of the things he does well don't ne- doesn't necessarily translate to our games. I don't think he's a three thirty five hitter. His skills look almost exactly like they have in the past. You know, there are a lot of things he does right in the field. He's a terrific corner outfielder. He gets on base. These are all things you want. He's durable. He reminds me a lot of uh, J.D. Drew, except for the fact that he's actually durable and stays in the lineup. You know, he has a lot of skills that just don't lend themselves to most of our fantasy games. He's a terrific sim player, just not a great roto player. I don't think what he's doing right now, especially in terms of the batting average, is going to keep going. Looking at some underperforming hitters, I've asked a lot of uh, our experts about B.J. Upton, four homers, eight RBIs, and three bags, and he's batting 146 as we talk today, a minus $9 player. is First of all, is he a factor of fluke, and is there any chance, Ray, he's worth a buy-low bid? You know, he's a... F- you have to call him a fluke because he has a track record of being so much better than this over so, such a long sample size. He is, we, we also know he's prone to slumps and he's prone to having bad stretches that can last a really long time. This is starting to remind me a lot of what we saw from Adam Dunn a couple of years ago. And I'm starting to get worried that this is not going to turn around this year. I still like Upton a lot. I'm a big fan of... I'm as big a fanboy as of the Upton brothers as you'll find. I'm starting to wonder if what we're seeing right now isn't some sort of, uh, you know, to quote an old movie, an, an E.T. effect where, uh, you know, only one of the Uptons is allowed to live or live and thrive while the other one has to be sick and sick and weak, and BJ's the sick and weak one right now. <laughs> but um, regardless of that, you know, I don't know when this is going to end. It's going to end at some point. Is he a buy-low candidate? I would say yes, but it may not be until drafts next March where that actually happens. A lot of people had high hopes for Washington second baseman Danny Espinosa. So far, anybody who invested in him is minus nine in the glue on dollars. Three uh, homers, 12 RBIs, four bags, batting 162. A factor of fluke? I think this is a fluke. I mean, he's one another one of these free swingers to some extent like Upton and Dunn that, you know, it seems like these guys are prone to longer slumps where they just don't make enough contact to get themselves going. Doesn't seem like there's a real reason for this. His walk rate is down, which just tells me he's he's pressing now that things are spiraling out of control and pitchers are getting him out out of the strike zone. That whole team, for that matter, seems to be pressing, whether it's under the weight of the preseason expectations or a hangover of the way they went out of the playoffs last year. You know, but those things can change, and those things can change collectively on a dime. Somebody gets hot, and that gets hot too. You know, if I'm if I'm if I was saying earlier that I'm Starting to think about giving up Upton on Upton for this year. I don't think I'm willing to give up on Espinosa yet. Looking at some overperforming pitchers, Mike Miner looked great against uh, Toronto the other night. I hate to use these subjective terms, but he just looked like he knew what he was doing out there. Great presence on the mound. A 2.48 ERA worth $26. Even has 66 strikeouts in 72 innings. Do you think Mike Miner is a fact or a fluke? I think he's a fact. I actually covered him uh, in my column that's on the site today, covering uh, buy high candidates. Uh, you know, if, it was about this time last year when Miner really took off and went nuts, and he's carried that over now. And if you you know sum sum that up, what he's done this year and what he did when he got hot last year, you know, we're now looking at like 160 innings of this you know two and a half ERA, almost strikeout per inning pitcher, 
you know, no one's talking about him in the next generation of aces with your Strasburgs and your Kershaws. And I'm not saying he's exactly in that neighborhood yet, but behind those two, he's probably about as good as anybody in the National League right now over the last 10 or 12 months. And, you know, it, it might, if it's a situation in your league where the guy who has him thinks he's, this is a random hot start and wants to sell him before his ERA careens back toward 4.00, I don't absolutely jump on that because I don't think it's going to happen. I think he's this good. How about Justin Masterson in Cleveland? Eight wins, a three ERA, 115 whip, worth 21 bucks so far. Uh, Justin Masterson, a fact or a fluke? You know, at some point, you know, he seems like he's getting incrementally better. And, you know, when he first became a starter, he had all kinds of problems with left-handed hitters. He's gotten better with that. Uh, he's still not great against lefties, but he is just absolute death on righties. Uh, you know, I just looked at it this morning. He's right-handed hitters have a five-something OPS against him. He just shreds them. And, you know, when you think about what Masterson is doing and you think about it in the context of today's game, he may be benefiting from the fact that the way teams are building their rosters these days, they just don't have deep enough benches to go off and create platoons anymore. You don't see teams keeping platoon guys around just for the sake of being able to beat up on lefties. And, you know, you can probably have some success against Masterson if you can stack up six or seven left-handed hitters in your lineup, but there are very few teams around who can do that because they're carrying 13, hitter, 13 hitters and 12 pitchers on their roster. And when you throw out the backup catcher and uh, you know no-hit three-position middle infielder, you don't have you know specialist lefty killers on major league benches anymore, and those are the kind of guys that would give Masterson trouble. And in the absence of those guys, Masterson is just shredding the right-handers who run up against them. Looking at some underperforming pitchers now, I was talking with Jock Thompson in our American League Newswatch segment earlier and again with Todd Zola a few minutes ago about Joe Blanton. And Todd was saying he doesn't think Blanton can possibly be as bad as his current minus $25.594 ERA suggests. And Blanton has had a vote of confidence from Mike Sosha, the Angels manager. How do you like Blanton's horrendous line? Is it a fact or a fluke? You know, Blanton's the kind of guy who's always had better skills than his results, and I've gone under the hood and looked at him a couple of times over the years because I've owned him and he's frustrated me. And you, you see a couple of things in his numbers. And I haven't done this yet this year. I don't know if it's the same, but what I've seen in the past is a terrible combination of he gets in trouble in the first inning, and he runs out of gas really early at like, you know, 80, 85, 90 pitches. And he's not exactly a felt guy. And you almost wonder how much he's being hampered by poor conditioning. Because in innings like, you know, if you graph it by inning, in innings like two, three, and four, he's terrific. But at the beginning and the end, he's awful. There's just not enough time where he's A, warm, and B, not yet out of gas where he can actually thrive. And I don't know how you fix that. Socia doesn't have a choice to, but to give him a vote of confidence because they don't have any depth to speak of. They have nobody pushing for his rotation spot. They can barely cobble together five major leaguers to go through a rotation turn as it is right now. So they have to ride him, and Blanton's skills sure say he should be better, but um, I've seen this movie before, and he doesn't always come around. One thing I always liked about Joe Blanton in the times I had him, Ray, was, man, he works fast. I remember a, a Seattle-Oakland game. I think the fi- the whole thing finished in like an hour and 28 minutes or something like that. And I wish I could remember who was on the hill for Seattle at the time. But it's a pleasure to listen to a game where they're just, man, bang, 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 let's throw the ball, let's go. 
That is fun, but you know, on the flip side, the way Blanton's going, maybe you should try taking a deep breath every now and then. <laughs> Harold Nichols and I were discussing the train wreck at the back of the Milwaukee rotation, and maybe Willie Peralta has been the caboose. Uh, minus twenty-two dollars, six thirty-five ERA, one seventy-three WHIP. He's had five quality starts in eleven tries and three PQS zeros in that time, so he's been awful. But is that a factor of fluke? You know, going back to your point about targeting guys from teams who look like they know what they're doing. I think Milwaukee might be one of those that goes in the other bucket now. I mean, you, as you say, that entire rotation's been a mess, and that's a rotation that has some talent. You know, between, you know, Gallardo's been way off of his traditional levels this year. You know, we had some hopes for Mike Fears, who's shown some good skills before, but has not gotten it done this year, and in fact, hasn't even really made it into their rotation. Peralta's another one who has great stuff, throws hard, and just can't seem to harness it. So at some point, you know, when the problems are rotation wide like this, you almost wonder if, you know, they need a new pitching coach or, you know, some of these guys would benefit from a new take. So, you know, absent that happening in the middle of the season, I, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of optimism about this turning around, but uh, the problem seems to be one of other than the collective skills of the pitchers on this staff. There's, they're underperforming as a group and you got to start looking around for environmental causes for that. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And, Ray, as we wrap up, maybe you could remind our listeners, when does your speculator column come out, and what are your topics coming up? Columns usually on Fridays now. I have one up today, uh, as I mentioned, talking about uh, buy-high candidates. It includes uh, Mike Miner, who we talked about, and, uh, you know, I think uh, nine other guys who, I, who have started well and who I believe can keep it going. So Fridays are generally when the speculator hits the site. Uh, you know, the uh, amount of other work I have to do that we were talking about earlier sometimes leads to a slip of a day or so. So sometimes it's over the weekend, but generally Fridays. Next Friday or Saturday, I will uh, double back and take the flip side of this, the buy high coin and look at some uh, some sell low guys. You might have, you might suspect that BJ Upton is going to be on that list of you know guys who have killed us so far, but it's time to just get away from and not necessarily uh, bank on a rebound. From there, you know, come in June, we'll start talking about, uh, you know, we'll continue to do some performance analysis for a few weeks and look at, uh, you you know, some hot starters and some trends and all those sorts of things we always do. And then come July, we always dedicate the speculator to, you know, breaking down what we think might happen at the trade deadline. That's always a lot of fun. So that's that's a month or so out yet, but that's uh, something I always look forward to at this time of year. All right, Ray, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again, I hope, uh, at least one more time during the season. Sounds great, Patrick. We'll talk to you soon. Ray Murphy is the speculator columnist and, as it turns out, the general manager for administration at BaseballHQ.com. Our regular commentaries are next. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio. There's a long drive way back in center field, way back, back. It is Second Dolby is able to go to third. Willie Mays just brought this crowd to his feet with a catch. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Rob Gordon is on the DL this week dealing with some bronchitis. So we have Ryan Bloomfield on deck with the HQ matchup segment. Pat DiCaprio is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle with HQ Alternatives, talking about alternative formats and alternative strategies. This week, Matt's topic is challenging conventional closer drafting strategies by paying for saves. I'm about to challenge two of the most standard industry norms that have stood for decades. And in fact, the evidence may not even prove me correct. 
We're even going to go against Baseball HQ mantra that has been tried and true for a long time. The experts tell you, don't pay for saves. You can fab them later. And they tell you that closers are one category players. Don't overpay for saves because that's only one of four or five categories in most leagues. This is why I disagree. What makes you assume that you can fab anywhere better than your other competitors? In the draft, you have a chance to control, or in the auction, how much you pay or what round you pick them. Taking a solid closer where they belong yields you solid values such as Mariano Rivera, Sergio Romo, Houston Street, Greg Holland, and even Brandon League this year I got in many drafts at a very reasonable price. Didn't have to overpay for any of them. If you take that last draft pick for your last pitcher position, and instead of adding another starter, you draft a closer, you could have gotten Brandon League, Jason Grilly, or Rafael Betancourt very late in most drafts. Pretty good value. And it's an easy way to win a category by putting that extra pitcher focusing on the one category that you can pretty much know that's the closer role. You can control the save category as opposed to starting pitcher wins, ratios, and strikeouts. I would rather put a 17th round pick on a Brandon League then rely on the luck of fab throughout the season. The problem is if we look at our season now, it's almost a third of the way through. There are about 14 closers that have come on the waiver wire. Let's look at some of them. They look really successful if you have K-Rod this week or Vinny Pastano or Joe Smith trying to get those Cleveland saves with the injury to Chris Perez. You've got Heath Bell, Junichi Tozawa, Jose Valverde, an excellent pickup in midseason. A very unusual circumstance there. Kevin Gregg came from nowhere, Andrew Bailey, Edward Mejica, Jim Henderson. All people that right now seem like good values as closers. Did you get them all? How about Mitchell Boggs, Trevor Rosenthal, Kelvin Herrera, or Rex Brothers? Did they work out for you? If you got them, you spent heavily to do so. And if you didn't spend enough, you lost out. So what did you really gain? You've lost a third of the season when you could have a Brandon League on your roster, who's not the best skilled pitcher, but has contributed plenty of saves. You could have the top closer in the league, Jason Grilly, simply with maybe a 15th round pick in your draft. Or a minor bid in an auction, because no one wants to go for that third closer because there's so much turnover in the closer position. But there's no guarantee you're going to get those next guys. The assumption of fab your closer assumes that you're going to get them every time. Reality, every other team in your league is trying to do the same thing. Even if they already have three closers, as I do in one NFBC league, I still bid a little bit on Kevin Gregg because I want to keep him from my competitors. So everybody's out there trying to get those same saves each week, and they're paying extra fab dollars to do so. Wouldn't you rather have that fab to pay for a starting pitcher that you want to stream or a hitter that you have to replace that's injured instead of finding yourself all season trying to come up with saves from second-rate pitchers who may lose the job in a few weeks or get injured as Mitchell Boggs did? All that fab money wasted, and suddenly you're at a disadvantage for needs you may have later in the season. So draft your closers at a reasonable point in the draft. Take an extra pick for that third closer later on that comes cheaply. At the very end of the draft or the auction, get some highly skilled middle relievers like Luke Gregerson or Darren O'Day. Vinny Pastano should have been already on your roster maybe, 
as a low-risk, late-roster filler that won't cost you any fab if they do luck into the job. The second misnomer is that closers only contribute in one category, saves. In fact, if you get a decent closer, they're going to contribute in the ratio categories because generally relievers have lower whips and ERAs than starting pitchers. So really they're contributing in three categories compared to a starting pitcher which should only contribute to four. There really isn't that much of a difference. Yes, they have less innings, so maybe it's not quite that close, but they still do contribute to those ratio categories. And if you are fortunate to get a closer with a high strikeout rate, they can minimize the impact on that extra category as well. So think about it. And when you have a trade opportunity or you have a draft opportunity, go for that extra closer, get them on your roster, and secure that one category because it's really not going to hurt you too much in the others. With the HQ Alternative, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle is the official video blogger of Stratomatic and writes at BaseballHQ.com. He's also doing pretty well in the online competition at the NFBC, and we'll catch you up on that next time. Now it's HQ matchups, looking at individual pitcher skills for Sunday's games and how certain pitchers match up against the opposing lineups. The scale runs from 5, which is a must-start, to minus 5, which is a must-sit. With the Skinny on Games coming up, here's Ryan Bloomfield looking at Justin Masterson at Yankee Stadium and Jean-Mar Gomez against Cincinnati. Justin Masterson gets a very nice 2.09 matchup rating from the starting pitching report against the Yankees on Monday. He'll be pitching in homer-friendly Yankee Stadium, especially for left-handed hitters, but his heavy ground ball tilt at 55% should help neutralize that home run risk. The rest of Masterson's skills say his breakout season so far has been for real. He's striking out over a batter per inning and has a 320 expected ERA. Also, the Yankees' offense has been struggling lately, hitting 236 with an on-base below 300 in May. Jordan Zimmerman is coming off what is easily his worst start of the season, a 7-run, 10-hit disaster against Baltimore. But that shouldn't deter you from having full confidence in him moving forward. Zimmerman's giving up two earned or less in all but two of his starts this year, and his underlying skills, namely a 4.9 strikeout-to-walk rate and 50% ground ball rate, say he'll be just fine. He'll get the Mets on Monday, who are struggling in May, averaging just over three runs a game. Normally, having a starter with a 2.30 ERA is an automatic start, but Jean-Marc Gomez may be an exception here. Gomez's expected ERA is actually above 4. He's been very lucky with his hit rate and strand rate so far. He's facing the top run-scoring lineup in the National League in Cincinnati on Sunday, so take caution in starting Gomez with a matchup rating below 0. And finally, Scott Diamond of Minnesota is certainly a risky play here given his poor May so far. He has a 567 ERA this month with just a 3.5 strikeout per nine innings, and he hasn't made it through six innings in any of his last four starts. He'll face Seattle on Sunday this time around, but his negative 1.75 matchup rating should warn you to stay away. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with Baseball HQ. Attention Daily Streaming League and Salary Cap Gamers. Ryan Bloomfield and Brian Brickley do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with Patrick DiCaprio talking about May, the great equalizer. May is the great equalizer. This is a statement I've been making for the last few years. Too many fantasy owners are rash, jumping to quick judgments on small samples because of recency bias 
and because April has a special position in the life of a fantasy baseball owner. No one wants to get off to a bad start, but it happens. And far too often when it happens, an owner goes off the deep end. The problem with this, of course, is that water seeks its own level, and baseball players with established track records will almost always come around. Matt Cain had a hard start, and his owners were shouting expletives from the rooftops when all they needed was excruciating patience. Regression to the mean is a stern taskmaster and an unyielding, unforgiving mistress. The hot start of John Buck had many owners out to an early lead in their leagues, but he's come back to earth in startling fashion. And Unieski Betancourt, he's hitting a cool 179 in May as of this recording. May is when those good and bad starts start to equalize, and this year was no different. As May progressed, sample sizes grew. The opposition adjusted, and expectations started to be met. And in many cases, it takes a long time to see those results in the standings. But May is almost always the great equalizer, and fantasy owners need to take note. Here are some cases where May was the great equalizer. Among hitters, Marco Scudero is a good example. Scudero got off to a very slow start, hitting 240 in April, and many owners were dropping him for the likes of Jerks and Profar. But Scudero has a long record of batting average success, and this was a bad move. Scudero is hitting 420 in May as of May 27th, and has seen his season-long batting average go up to 324. For a player who's hit over 300 in the last two years combined, it was only a matter of time before Scudero equalized. Carlos Santana is another example, and with the good comes the bad, and Santana has regressed badly in May. After an April in which he hit 389 with five homers and 13 RBI, it looked like he might be turning into the star that many predicted. But after hitting 205 in May with eight RBI, we've seen his stock wane. Among pitchers, how about Rick Porcello? Yes, even bad pitchers can equalize over a month. In April, Porcello had an 884 ERA, but he's bad he ain't that bad. And his April ERA came with a 47% strand and 35% hit rate. His expected ERA was 473, right in line with his typical performance. And May brought a 418 ERA, but with the added bonus of a 295 expected ERA as his Dom jumped to 8. Brandon McCarthy is another good example among pitchers. He got off to a terrible start, and after the beaning last year in September, it was very easy to be down on McCarthy after a 7.48 ERA and 1.77 whip. But as usual, the true story was purely about small sample size and bad luck. He had a 57% strand and a 41% hit rate in April. The lesson here is twofold. The first is that fantasy owners need to restrain themselves from snap judgments based on what happens in April. We preach excruciating patience, and nowhere is patience needed more than in dealing with April slow starts. Secondly, looking at season-long stats at the end of May is often not as useful as examining the splits. A better way to analyze what a player will do is to see whether and how the player's equalization is going. Carlos Santana above was a good example. April's in the books. May has brought a big equalization, and he has an established track record of batting average in the 250 range. His current batting average is a lot less telling than it appears. For Baseball HQ... This is Pat DiCaprio. Pat DiCaprio is a BaseballHQ.com Roto Gaming columnist and a member of the Masternotes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week.
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 31st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with BaseballHQ.com columnist and general manager Ray Murphy. Always great to talk with Ray, and he knows his way around the technology, which came in handy this time. Believe you me, behind the scenes, Ray fixed something that was going way wrong. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our HQ alternative commentator was Matt Beagle. Our HQ matchups commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Master Notes commentator this week was BaseballHQ.com, Roto Gaming columnist Pat DiCaprio. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. You already heard about Ray Murphy's speculator column about buy-high candidates. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at reducing the number of categories in rotisserie baseball. Dan Becker has a batting buyer's guide column coming up looking at the value of drafting from premium offenses. Plus, we have all the regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a research article on the site right now about what pitch FX data might tell us about batters. And, of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also feel free to join literally more than 100 followers on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. And please do tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Ron Chandler on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>